This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, 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 and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the founder of the Power Plays newsletter. And joining me as we enter month, I think 1000 of lockdown is, uh, are two of my fabulous co-hosts, Shereen Ahmed. The, now I just think of everyone's intro for you, you know, freelance sports reporter and cat lover up in Toronto, Canada. Hey, Shereen. Hello. Good morning. I feel like I, I don't want to spoil our what's good, but I feel like I now have to do, <laughs> have, to, have to add like the birthday gift giver extraordinaire <laughs> to that list because oh. I, I can't stop thinking about that photo, but we will, you all will have to stay till the end of the episode to figure out what we're talking about. And also we've got Dr. Brenda Elsie in New York. She is the associate professor of history at Hofstra University. Hi, Brenda. Hello. Good morning. So today we've got a great show for you because when do we not, we're going to be talking NASCAR, which is actually, believe it or not, our loyal listeners will know, not the first time we've done deep dives into NASCAR on the show. Um, but it's been a big week in NASCAR. We've, um, we're with them finally banning the Confederate flag. So we'll dive into that. I talked with No Olympics LA organizers Molly Lambert and Anne Ortier. And then we're just going to talk a little bit about the women's sports leagues that are starting back because the media likes to pretend that the only thing going on is the men's sports leagues, but we know that's not true. First, though, speaking of women's sports, there's been some news about the selection for the Women's World Cup to host the Women's World Cup, which once again, it's in less than three years, and we still don't know where it's going to be. Um, Brenda, can you get us updated on the World's World Cup selection news? Yeah, it's all bad for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that... that means, so that means Brazil's gone. Brazil pulled saying. out, which, which absolutely would have made the most sense if you're critical of mega events and the way in which they spend money, because this would have been a wonderful use of the enormous white elephant stadiums that were put into place or modified for the 2014 World Cup. It also would be the first time it was held in Latin America. So that's very upsetting for me personally, because I think they, I mean, the the CBF, the Brazilian Federation claimed it couldn't get the government on board, you know, okay. But it really just shows that they're, that they're not interested 
in um, stabilizing the women's league. So I was I was bummed about that. And also, I'm disgusted by the rubric of the way in which they get points for this. It is supposed to promote the diffusion of the game and to, to support women playing. And instead, like the red on Columbia's report, the reason that they have, the number one reason they have less points then Australia and New Zealand is because of money, because it's seen as less profitable. Australians have more money. <laughs> so you're okay. saying we are just perpetuating the existing yeah, systems absolutely. with this decision. Shereen, do you have any feelings? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a couple top of the shows ago, and I was like very open and excited about the possibility of Australia, like, I just, I agree with Brenda though. I love Brazil, but something that really is really fascinating about this, like these, these, these arbitrary sort of judgments and like modules that they use. I think it's good to note somebody replied to Rob Harris who had a Twitter thread about it. And this person's name is Kevin Pollard. And they said that actually Cutthers 2022 bid was considered to be a high operational risk. And I'm quoting directly from that tweet. And U.S. was a favorite considering structure, you know, politics, safety, weather, everything. But Qatar ended up winning. So, like, it's it's these methods of judging and stuff. We don't know. I know. I know it's terrible that Brazil, like, you know, left, like they withdrew. But I'm just saying, like, the way that this whole thing is done is so slimy. And I don't like it. I, it's really, I don't have a better word for it. I think it's slimy. I think of FIFA and I think it's slimy. So that's the technical term. But it's just, I think that I'm wanting to support. And hopefully if I can have the money, I'll go to the quarters of the world to support it, to support women's football. Yes, same. Uh, Bren? We should probably <sighs> mention Japan, right? That is also Shireen and I's backup favorite team usually. Uh, and that's that's been going through something really weird, which is the establishment of a new league called We, uh, Women's Empowerment. It's an, an English name for the Japanese league, which is kind of superseding the Nadashiko League, Nadashiko, which is considered to be the oldest semi or professional women's league in the world that continuously has played for 30 years. So that's seen as being part of their bid. And I really think, you know, in future shows, we'll dig into this a little more because I don't get what's going on there at all. Like why they would put that league underneath this new one. So a lot of questions for me. Yeah, we will return to that question in later shows and we will return to some women's soccer talk later in this show. But for now, let's start on the track. Shireen, can you uh, tell us what is going on in NASCAR right now? Yeah, thanks, Lindsay. So this was a lot of fun for me to be assigned to do sort of the intro to the segment. So I know nothing about NASCAR other than watching Lightning McQueen and knowing that they drive around a track like... Uh, 500 times apparently that's where Indy 500 came on I did not know this and they sort of turned left like this was my only understanding of what race car driving was particularly I think the politics surrounding it let's not just not say it's like super welcoming for BIPOC but what I mean is it's just not something that particularly interests me I think when I got to understanding more and heard about there's two particular women that I will mention later in the segment but just sort of learning about that it has a very 
interesting history. Let's just say that. So for those of you that don't know, NASCAR is the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. And the only re- reason I'm repeating this, may maybe all of you know, but I certainly did it. And I got this information from the Smithsonian Magazine. And what was really fascinating was to read about the, the history of it was that this happened during Prohibition. NASCAR ended up coming out specifically December 14, 1947. And there's somebody named Bill, Big Bill France. Now, he was a bootlegger, a runner, and the way that NASCAR was actually formulated is because these drivers who used to take this bootlegged alcohol would be very familiar with the roads and this and learn how to drive with exceptional skill. So that's actually where this was born and the ideology kind of came from. So it came and they held a meeting, Big Bill France, he held a meeting with other drivers, car owners, mechanics, to put in what, what are standardized rules, I guess, and just ideas and, and regulations in terms of the way it would function. And there was born NASCAR. So I think that that's really interesting because any sport that's born out of resistance or disruption fascinates me, and I didn't know this. However, however, there's a big however here, the culture... <laughs> The culture that NASCAR took on was very different. It is when I think of NASCAR, I think of you know south of the the, the Mason Dixon line. I think of the Confederate flag. I think of just a place that I would literally never want to be. Like I, that's what I think of, and I don't know much about it truthfully, other than to say that there was an article that I was in, in a little bit of my digging that I did. There was an article written for Forbes magazine. I'm not angry at this article by Dave Caldwell. I'm not. But because, you know, it talks about the history and not just Danica Patrick, who is famously a, a very prominent race car driver. But it's just that I would prefer it if it was a little more critical. I mean, that's my that's my actual reaction to everything written by men all the time. But and if it was written by a woman or a BIPOC, like I would just be more interested in it. Now, I think that what I do appreciate is the talking about women. Now, every single person mentioned in this article is white and most of them are blonde. And, you know, hashtag not all blondes. But the point is, there's very little. I did also learn that in up and coming leagues that are under the umbrella of NASCAR, there's something called the K&N Series East and West. Like there's different people. And these are all under the umbrella of this. And you have to participate in a certain amount of the smaller races to be able to qualify for a bigger one. And, you know, it's just like it's, it's formulated in very much the same way that other sports things would be formulated. And so at the point where all this is happening, there hasn't been a woman who's had a cup ride in quite a while. And although NASCAR does have a diversity program and you're all like, what? They do have a diversity program. And I think for them, the weight of the diversity program is more on gender. It's been a big, 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 big news week for NASCAR. The We will get into that. They have famously announced that they will not it will ban the Confederate flag, as Lindsay mentioned. And so I don't know if this is the beginning of a decolonization piece or like anti-oppression movement within NASCAR, but whatever it is, I'm willing to go along for the ride. Yeah. So I think I've talked about on the show before, because we have, you know, we've talked about the Drive for Diversity program before here. And, you know, I grew up in the South, so NASCAR was around me. It was a big deal. It was a big sport, but I never had any interest in it at all. I was, you know, my dad would watch it a lot and his friends and I'd always just be like, why would you ever watch this? They're literally just driving in circles, like, you know, the typical hate. And additionally, you know, culturally, it just didn't appeal to me 
that much either. And then when I was a contract writer for Bleacher Report, maybe like six, seven years ago, my editor who I worked with on tennis stuff and Olympic stuff and other things, he was also the NASCAR editor. And so he just asked me one day, you know, can you write a column about the NASCAR race this week? And I was very broke and needed, you know, whatever the amount was I was getting per column, you know, 130 or something, $130. And of course, I needed the work. So I just said, absolutely, no problem. And then went and learned as much about NASCAR as I could in two days. And I ended up writing about the sport kind of week in, week out for a couple of years. And I grew to like it a lot more than I ever thought I would. Um, for a lot of reasons, there's primarily the, what I always talk about is it's, it's an easy sport to come into because it's the same drivers on a weekend week out basis. So it's kind of the same like 25 main characters and people that you're getting to know. So it's really easy to follow the rivalries and the drama and to get personally invested in these drivers and these teams. But of Of course, then there's the big, huge diversity problem. So there's only one full-time black driver in NASCAR on the top series. So on the top echelon of the sport. And that is Bubba Wallace. And he's been around for a few years and is just always been... I mean, he's never shied away, of course, from talking, from answering questions about race. But he never really wanted to engage deeply in the topic. Um, I think it, he came through the Drive for Diversity program and that, so that, it, you know, it was part of his story, but for, you know, understandable reasons, like there was a video on Bleacher Report up from a few years ago where he talks about the fact that he thinks he's not getting any sponsors because he's black. Like that's why he was having trouble finding sponsors. And that video was almost immediately completely scrubbed from the internet. Like it was, you know, I'm sure he and his um, team and NASCAR worked really hard to get that away. Like he regretted saying that. But over the past few weeks on a weekend, week out basis, Bubba has been the leader of the sport in addressing Black Lives Matter and opening up and pushing his fellow drivers to say something and putting the pressure on the, the top names of the sport to condemn the murder of George Floyd, to have frank discussions about race. And it's been one of the more powerful things I've witnessed. I mean, he is just the epitome of having like the pressure of a sport on his shoulders. And most people are not willing to engage in this topic. And he has risked a lot because of how much NASCAR is tied to sponsorship, how much NASCAR is tied to this conservative uh, marketplace. And Um, how much hate he's gotten throughout his career just for being black. And he has stood up in this moment and really pushed the sport forward. There's been some surprising allies that we've seen. 
Ty Dillon is a white driver who kind of came up in the scenes with um, Bubba Wallace. And they had last week, like this 30 minute long, deep dive Instagram discussion on race. And that's something I never thought I would see from um, two NASCAR drivers. Dale Earnhardt Jr. has long been a leader in wanting the Confederate flag to be banned from all NASCAR races. So he has, um, you know, he's been leading the charge. But we've really seen this kind of upswell of momentum. You've seen the NASCAR drivers come together to put out a video addressing systemic racism. You've seen names from top to bottom of the sport, hashtagging Black Lives Matter. It's the bare minimum, I get it. (laughs) But to see it in this sport feels like a significant step. And it all culminated when Bubba called for the Confederate flag to be banned. And this is something he's been advocating for, but he really in this moment, I think, realized the momentum he had. And NASCAR finally said, you're right. You know, we're going to ban it. Now, what this means we still have to see. When I was at a race in Richmond a couple years ago to write, or actually now four years ago for Think Progress, the Confederate flag, it wasn't the, it wasn't the people, you know, there, yes, there were some trailers and some RVs that had the flag flying high, the actual flag itself, but it was more that that symbol was on t-shirts. It was on hats. It was on coolers. It was, you know, everywhere you looked kind of ingrained into what people are wearing. And once we get back to a place where lots of fans are at these games, I'm very curious as to, you know, kind of what we're going to see next, which is a long way to say it's been a big week, but obviously it's only the beginning. Shereen, for those of people who have not deeply listened to, um, our archive. Can you tell us a little bit about more about the Drive for Diversity program and how that has helped the sport? Sure. Uh, the Drive for Diversity program is really an attempt to reach out to different communities and have people coming up through the ranks that came from that were either women or from racialized communities and even some LGBTIQ, although I don't actually know if there was a specific call for LGBTIQ uh, community like outreach there. However, I think that what ended up happening is we know of two names very specifically, Brianna Daniels, who was the first black woman to be featured. And she has won Badass Woman of the Week on our show before. And along with her is someone named Brianna O'Leary, who also is, she's not a black woman, but she's a woman. And the two of them actually were famously on a team together. And it made news that there were two women one black, one white, but just the fact that there was two women in the, on this pit team, which is which is a really big deal. Now, I know when you think of the total numbers of people in the entire like system of NASCAR, it doesn't seem like a lot, but considering it's like literally ninety nine percent, I would say white. I might even say ninety nine percent point something, but there's not actual statistics because I looked for them on the number of BIPOC or marginalized people and what that looks like. Like NASCAR doesn't keep statements or sorry, 
numbers on this, they'll just point to the diversity program. I do believe it's growing. I think there's like as Bubba Wallace's impact on youth and moving forward, I think that it'll it'll grow. It has a long way to grow. Like I'm not comfortable saying that NASCAR is a place where there is equitable or sustainable change. Like I'm not ready to say that yet personally, because I just don't think that's a thing at this point with NASCAR. Now, that being said, with Brianna Daniels talking so much, and she's very articulate, she's very excited, she's quite young. So she's like in her like early to mid twenties, like to be able to say that and really look and find a career and find a family. Like she refers very often, like her interviews are great. She's very, very enthused and enthusiastic and sorry, emphatic about loving like NASCAR. She loves it. And she's found a team there. And I think that's, that makes me hopeful. But, you know, there's the cynical side of me that's like, okay, maybe that's just in one pocket. But we'll see, especially with the changes coming forth in the in in this entire thing. Yeah. And I think what's important to note is a few things. First of all, the Strive for Diversity program is more than kind of a decade old at this point. So there have been people doing the work. There are actually a lot of I was surprised when I started covering the sport regularly and writing about the diversity issues within the sport that there's a lot of really good people behind the scenes really working to make change and constantly fighting against this part of their fan base that NASCAR has felt be holden to for so long. I do think that you know NASCAR fans are pretty aware of drive for diversity. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of racist shit head NASCAR fans. And change in this sport is, I think, even more difficult because of the culture and also because of the way the sport is. There's only 40 drivers on the top, um, you know, ranks. There's only about 25 full-time rides in the top of the ranks. It is super, super hard to break into because, you know, these careers last for decades in some cases. So it's a really hard to, to get any drivers. But I just, when, what my point was, was that this isn't happening. Like there have been people laying the groundwork for a decision like this within the ranks for a long time. And I wanted to acknowledge that work. I didn't want to make it seem like the work was done or that everyone had, everyone can pack up and go home now. But I, I just do think it's important to acknowledge that, that a week like this doesn't happen without decades of people working behind the scenes, often unrecognized to lay a foundation for this within in carving out space within this bigger organization. This really only took off in the 1940s and 50s as a symbol of the Dixiecrat Party and an anti-desegregation movement. So this is a really violent symbol, and not. And so, if you want to, if you want to mark it in history, it's the history of you know extrajudicial violence against African Americans in the United States, not just the South. And you know, it's popular with the Klan, and it's popular at University of Mississippi football games. Mississippi is the only state to still have the Confederate flag within its state flag. So luckily, NASCAR doesn't do races in Mississippi. So this isn't a, I guess, particular problem. And for any of you that get told in the next couple of weeks that the Confederacy is about states' rights, remember, it's about states' rights to have slavery. That's the state right that they're talking about. 
Remember that Mississippi started its state um, declaration against the union by saying it, quote, thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. That's line number one. It doesn't say, oh, we're super interested in tariffs. Mm-mm. Okay? So it's been crazy. But that said, um, the Mississippi flag thing is in particular, for me, interesting because Tommy Joe Martin's one of the NASCAR drivers is a native Mississippian who used to drive with it on his car. And I thought it was really interesting the way in which the last week he has come out to say he's evolved on this issue and he's really happy that NASCAR has now banned it and that there's so many other ways to express being proud of Mississippi. So just as a little bit of background, too, in global football, sometimes the Confederate flag gets used by the far right in Eastern European soccer games and by those white supremacists there. So you should know that it has global residence and that it is considered, even by FIFA, to be a discriminatory symbol and any global football team can be sanctioned for its use in their stadiums. I want to I want to shout out to end this. Just one of the most pure things that I've seen this week has been. It's just made me so happy for Bubba Wallace, and um, I think has been a lot of most prominent black athletes really now saying that they're gonna wa- they want to watch NASCAR, that they want to support him and come to the races. Alvin Kamara, the an NFL player, started tweeting about it. He was like, "I need to get into NASCAR now," and. Um, you know, NASCAR invited him to the race. I think he's actually going this weekend. Renee Montgomery, a WNBA player in Atlanta, um, she's tweeted out, you know, something like, I should, I want to get into NASCAR now. And her, for an entire day, her thread was just asking her followers, once again, it's a WNBA player. So you wouldn't think there'd be a huge uh, overlap between the audiences. But really, it was it was all of her followers just like patiently and enthusiastically explaining NASCAR to her. And she was asking all of these like NASCAR 101 questions. And it, it lasted the entire day. NASCAR also invited her to a race, which I get like is can be feel a little PR sticky, but it she was so excited by it. And all of the her replies were just so pure. There was no or not much that I saw animosity or hate. It was just kind of welcoming in this new slate of fans. And I hope that that's what it gets to be going forward. All right. Next, you're going to hear my interview with No Olympics LA organizers, Molly Lambert and Anne Orchier. Just a programming note that this interview was recorded a couple of weeks ago before the protest really spread around the country. And we saw the every single day more extreme examples of police violence at those protests. But we do talk about um, abolishing the police in here. So I think it will still it's still timely for sure. Hey everyone, Lindsay here. I am thrilled today to be joined by Molly Lambert, a member of No Olympics and the co-host of the Night Call podcast, and Anne Ortier, another member of No Olympics, a former Burn It All Down guest, and a member of the LA Tenants Union. They are here to talk to all of us about, I I guess you can guess by now, the No Olympics movement and where things stand as um, the 2020 games have been postponed 
and we're kind of seeing is 2021 a possibility and should it be a possibility? Uh, Molly and Anne, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so Um, much for having me back on. Yeah, well, you did good. We we included the last one we liked so much. It was one of our best of the year. So, you know, it's good to mix it up. Um, so lots of pressure on you. This <laughs> Perfect. Just what we need right now. Perfect. Just putting it on. So I guess I'll start this with you, and Let's just dive right into it. Is Tokyo 2021 going to happen? And should it happen? Well, I think, I mean, to start with your second question, uh, you know, we we were pushing for the cancellation of 2020 prior to coronavirus, prior to the pandemic, and we're pushing for the abolition of the IOC everywhere. So uh, short answer would be no, Tokyo 2021 shouldn't happen. All of the the same concerns that we had pre-COVID-19 in terms of displacement, militarization, you know, diversion of resources from the victims of natural disasters in Japan, those still exist. And not only is the current pandemic not fixing those or making them easier to fix, it's, it's making everything worse. And continuing to prioritize the Olympics over the basic needs of folks who are struggling is not you know, a viable option in, in our mind. The question of will it happen seems very up in the air right now. Yeah, absolutely. Molly, for you, what are the, Anne just touched on a few of the, the main points of why you're not for the Olympics, period. How has the coronavirus changed that reasoning, if it has at all? Well, I think we've seen that the global infrastructure to handle a crisis is not as strong as we obviously would hope it would be. So it seems like something like this draws attention to really the weaknesses in sort of the international social safety net and the ways that countries really could be helping and supporting each other. And so the idea of just spending a lot of money on sort of a frivolous symbolic version of all of the countries coming together that doesn't really benefit the people in those countries just seems even more ridiculous now, I think, than it did before. You know, we obviously are for kind of a global solidarity, but at No Olympics, we like to think about like, what would that global solidarity really look like, as opposed to the superficial version you get every four years during the Olympics broadcast, where they make it seem like everybody's coming together to help each other. But you know, we think that what people really coming together to help each other would look like is something very different. So what uh, does that look like? <laughs> well, hopefully it looks like uh, some, <laughs> of the stuff right we, <laughs> some of the stuff we've been doing at No Olympics and a bunch of the other No Olympians went to Tokyo last summer to meet with some of our comrades in Tokyo and I think really talk about that with other people from other cities that have been affected by the Olympics. Maybe Anne can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah, And we talked, I think, right before Tokyo. So I'd love to hear more about how that trip went. Yeah, it was it was pretty incredible. It felt like a fever dream and not just because it was, you know, 100 degrees and and 99% humidity every second that we were there. But yeah, it was, you know, we've been communicating with folks in other cities since day one, basically, um, since we founded Olympics in the spring of 2017. We've been talking to folks in Tokyo, in Paris, in London, in Rio, 
people who were currently fighting bids in their cities, people who had previously hosted and wanted to share what their struggle looked like, what worked, what didn't. I should mention Vancouver as well, Calgary, Denver, New York, Boston, Chicago, like a, a long list of folks in other cities. And that's been like a huge cornerstone of our work. This is not like a NIMBY, get the Olympics out of here and then so just so they can destroy some, you know, some other city. And being together in person, like the kinds of conversations that you can have are really important. And I think that's been sort of a through line of our work also since day one. A lot of our work is based on talking to people. And, you know, if you compare that to how the IOC works, how the national organizing committees work, how the local organizing committees work, they're all about this sort of they work in this like elitist dark cover of night way. It's a lot of closed door conversations, private meetings, private parties. They're not publicly accessible. And their version of international solidarity is, is, you know, a couple of people on private jets being ferreted to and from each other's mansions and having, you know, like big power players. And and for us, you know, I, I think our summit in Tokyo is basically the opposite of that. It was hundreds of people in the streets of Tokyo marching from multiple different continents. It was sitting together, you know, having dinner and talking about what kind of music we liked and what evictions look like in our cities and what, you know, what different approaches to organizing unhoused and housed tenants together, we we found were successful and what, you know, the challenges were. So yeah, just being in the same room, having space to have sort of winding conversations feels really critical. Uh, and it's something that we're trying to continue right now. We're working on a series of uh, public transnational teach-ins uh, with folks from other cities uh, that are really designed to be an opportunity for people to talk to each other from all these different cities and countries to get to know each other better, to understand the different struggles in our cities, and then figure out how we can work together in this moment. So I think we're seeing a lot of people question how sports can bring solidarity when sports aren't going to you know, look like we we expect them to. So where right now, I know there was recently, you know, this isn't as you mentioned, it's this isn't just about Tokyo and whether or not, you know, we see the games in 2021, which I just think, like, just from a logistical perspective, the global nature of the event, I can't, it's hard to fathom how it's going to be pulled off. We're just going to have to kind of see. But I know this isn't just about Tokyo for you all. It's about Paris. It's about LA. Uh, so there's was recently a Paris referendum that happened. Molly, can you fill me in on that? Yeah, I think Anne might actually be a little better qualified to handle that one. <laughs> Anne! <laughs> well, yeah, so actually, so Paris, it's not, they have a petition that just launched. Okay. Um, and so the question of the referendum is interesting because that's sort of typically been the the clearest and most straightforward path to getting an Olympics canceled in any cities. And I'm still trying to figure out, honestly, like, you know, obviously every local and national context has different um different protocols for like what how you get a referendum on a ballot how you know how votes take place what they mean um what kinds of things can get on the ballot but in paris they were i think they're still sort of talking about the potential of a referendum but for right now and we've seen this happen in a few other cities particularly i think most of the cities that dropped out of the 2024 bidding process a lot of them didn't even make it to the referendum stage because 
people organized these mass petitions and were able to sort of demonstrate as like a soft threat through the collection of petition signatures, like, hey, people don't want this. And so this is sort of a first stage to, you know, I think to, you know, pushing for something more formal to sort of demonstrate like this is what the opposition looks like. This is the scale. And also with the petition versus a referendum, they're just straight up calling for the cancellation of the games. A lot of times in order to successfully get a referendum, a referendum on the ballot, it's it tends to get a little bit wonkier and more budget related and sort of like, you know, should we, you know, not necessarily like, should we hold these or not? But like, should we be using this source of funding to pay for them? Whereas the petition is just like, we don't want the Olympics, period. Um, and so they just launched that a couple of days ago. And it's been it's been performing, you know, really well from every time I've checked on it. There's a number of groups, including ours, including uh, the folks in Tokyo who have signed on and supported them. So yeah, it's exciting. They're really they're kind of taking this moment and, and seizing it and swinging, you know, swinging big. Yeah. And I know you all do a lot of organizing also around housing and hotels and, um, you know, the, the Airbnb world, the entire kind of housing world in Los Angeles is a part of your work. And what's the status of, of that right now, especially in the middle of this pandemic? Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, that's been... It's interesting with that sort of part of our work, which we, you know, kind of label under the homes, not hotels umbrella. And that kind of comes from, you know, there's this myth, uh, all of the boosters like Casey Wasserman, like Eric Garcetti, their big rally cry was just, oh, we don't have to build anything for these games. These are the no build Olympics. And it's like, okay, well, it's all semantic. If, you know, there's, there's all these stadiums going up that are displacing people and whether or not you you come out and say they're for the Olympics, like they're displacing actual people. So there's that. And then the other big thing that we started seeing almost immediately was that city council was using the you know the looming specter of the Olympics to push for a particular type of eviction, um, an Ellis Act eviction, which is a, a it's a state law in Los Angeles. It's a lo- loophole allowing landlords to force people out of rent stabilized homes if they plan on converting them into hotels. And so that was kind of a big focus of the campaign, uh, the Homestead Hotels campaign. Initially, we started moving in the last few months leading into this you know, new pandemic age to Airbnb, which had announced a partnership with the Olympics, which is like Airbnb displacement in LA is really intense. So that had become a new area of focus. And then almost overnight, the hotel industry cratered. Um, including, you know, short-term rentals like Airbnb and the the big, you know, corporate hotel industry. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing is now focused in two areas. Um, one is that we joined, helped form and are part of a statewide co- coalition called No Vacancy California that is pushing for quote unquote, elected leaders uh, across the state, including our mayor, Eric Garcetti, to commandeer the hundreds of thousands of vacant hotel rooms that now exist, uh, that the tourism industry is is on indefinite hiatus, uh, to house unhoused folks who were all already at increased risk of dying on our streets. We have, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, on average, three unhoused folks per day died in Los Angeles, which is unbelievable. I mean, it's it's believable given the conditions, but just, you know, completely unconscionable. 
And of course, these are the same folks who are much higher risk of dying of COVID. So the idea that we have, yeah, hundreds of thousands of vacant hotel rooms, like so many more hotel rooms than people who need a safe place to shelter, which as we know, shelter, housing is the only effective protection we have against coronavirus right now. So that's been the big push of, of no vacancy. And we're currently working on kind of, you know, one of the projects that we had been starting before all, all of this came out was was something called Locks on My Block, which was basically we were trying to track all of the Airbnb, illegal Airbnbs across the city. The city had finally, after like, you know, years long fight, put more extensive regulations in place about what units, you know, what types of units could be rented out as Airbnbs to basically prevent people from creating these illegal hotels and taking housing off of the market for folks to actually rent and using it to, you know, drive investment from tourism. So there are some number of units in LA that are vacant that are technically the city has already declared illegal to not be rented out. And so we're trying to work on uh, a plan for how we can create more pressure to, you know, to also convert those into housing for folks who immediately and urgently need it. It's always events like, I mean, the Olympics, but also emergencies like the, these, the pandemic right now are always, they hold up a mirror, don't they, to kind of the inequities. So I guess, you know, my final question is just, you know, how have you all seen in what ways has the government reacted during this pandemic? You know, you can talk locally or nationally that mirror ways that you're concerned about the government acting for the, for the Olympics. I mean, I think we see that people are placed so far behind profit as a motive for the reopening right now, even in California where you know, we theoretically have a slightly better process than some of the states have right now for the for the reopening. They're still just completely going ahead with reopening everything early now when it totally doesn't seem safe. And the reason for that is because they are catering to business owners and landlords and people with power and with money on every scale. So we can see just right now how with a crisis, things don't feel like they're happening the way that they should be. It doesn't feel like the people who are the most vulnerable and need to be taken care of the most are being prioritized. And that is kind of par for the course in Los Angeles. We just had this big budget argument where they are deciding to award over half of the budget for LA to the police department. So We know that the Olympics will only exacerbate things like that, that it's a national special security event, which means ICE can come in and have essentially full reign to do whatever they want in Los Angeles during the Olympics. That should terrify anybody who cares about what happens in Los Angeles. And we just can tell that the people that are served by the Olympics are not your average person in L.A., It is a very specific group of privileged oligarch people that are going to make a lot of money on this theoretically, and that's all they care about. And anything good about the Olympics is sort of just a smokescreen to get that to happen. You know, we're not against sports. We're not against 
international competitions, but as long as the International Olympic Committee is in charge of the Olympics, it's going to continue to be a grift. Yeah. And do you have anything to add to that to bring us home? Ooh, pressure. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess this is, this is the pressure cooker. We're in the hot seat on this one. I love it. It's really, it's, it's given me some, yeah, some pep to the start of my day. No, I think it's really, it's important. I think to, you know, there's sometimes this response that we get that it's like, you can't just be against the Olympics or what do you want instead? And I think for us, a lot of the work that we do is about imagining, not just imagining, but it's like the work that we actually do in real time, I think helps us to see like, oh, this is what the path forward for creating something better looks like, whether it's an international sporting competition, whether it's a livable city, whether it's a, you know, earth with, with clean air, um, you know, all of that comes from from dialogue, from like Molly said, from prioritizing people's basic needs and as particularly the needs of the most vulnerable people over profit. And kind of if that's the foundation that you start with, like we can come up with something way better than the Olympics. You know, like I, I have no doubt about that. And I don't see the work that we're doing as the death knell for sports. I think, you know, I think what we're doing is is we're reimagining and recreating the conditions that we need in order to, to come up with, with better versions of literally everything, um, including international sporting competitions. Yeah. And I think one thing the Olympics says a lot is, yeah, what would a real, what would real international solidarity look like as opposed to the illusion of it offered by the Olympics and the Olympics has done a lot of great work talking to people in other cities that have been affected by the Olympics and really, Realizing that what we all have in common is, you know, a housing crisis and a human rights crisis and an environmental crisis. And these are things that affect everybody around the world. And, you know, we are usually so siloed off from each other that the pandemic offers this glance at like, what could it look like for people to really take cues from each other and communicate with each other and build something away from, you know, it just, it doesn't seem like the people in charge right now have any vision for what an alternative could look like. So I think that falls on organizers and other people that do want to have sort of a, a more optimistic vision of what a city could be like and how it could serve the people that live there instead of just moneyed interests. Yeah. Yeah, the best yeah. offer that they have on the table is just like, here's a couple of band-aids and maybe a handful of, you know, a handful fewer of you will, you know, die. Like, like maybe you could be one of the few people who doesn't suffer as badly as the others. Like, that's their big vision. Yeah, and that's simply not good enough. Anne and Molly, thank you so much for joining us. How can people follow the work you're doing at No Olympics? I think so. Our website is nolympicsla.com. And then all of our social media handles are at nolympicsla. And I, sometimes folks get confused. It's just one O. It's not no Olympics. It's no Olympics. And we're also we are newly on TikTok, I believe. Oh, so. In, so yeah, so Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all the all the greatest hits. 
I once again feel old as I do every time anyone mentions TikTok. Um, (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It was great to talk to both of you again and, um, you know, stay safe and keep fighting. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. All right, friends, back to women's sports. Brenda, I know we've got some news in uh, the U.S. leagues and some international leagues. All sports have decided, it seems, to come back from coronavirus, and that includes the women. So what's happening? Yeah, so we see that really uh, so far globally, besides individual sports like MMA, we saw Amanda Nunes last week. Women's sports, it's really been football or soccer that has come back first uh, in terms of from Bundesliga, for example. And it's been really interesting because it's like a ready-for-TV version, right? There aren't fans, and there's lots of different schemes as to how to fulfill the television contracts, as to how to deal with sponsors. And it, it it's kind of a weird anxiety-provoking time. Uh, It's not clear that the top athletes are going to participate in this if they're worried about coronavirus. You know, people are going to get hurt with these kinds of tournaments and these sped-up seasons. I think La Liga, the men's league, even has about 40 games back-to-back. So you're taking and compressing the amount of time that people have to rest. So it'll be really interesting to see how it's going. Are they getting the type of support in women's sports? Chan chan, you know, spoiler alert, no, not from the media, not from the trainers, not from the federations. But it's still really interesting. So you've got the Bundesliga, which has already been back now, coming on a month. And it's been pretty fascinating. Now they're going to start to relax uh, some of the rules, like the media personnel are permitted to be at games, Coaching staff is no longer wearing masks. So they sort of have spearheaded this, and it's been really interesting to watch. The NWSL is next on June 27th uh, with its Challenge Cup, as it's called. Uh, So it's the first U.S. Pro League to return uh, to live games, which is pretty fascinating. And a lot of players seem to be uncomfortable with it at the same time the US like the German league has given them you know decent contract salary housing that should be commensurate with what they would have gotten before so that's really great for them that they've been able to negotiate that then you've got Latin American leagues falling apart um England canceling so all different types of reactions and it's 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 actually interesting to keep up with just one other note women athletics also take place at universities and what we've got so far has been really troubling the University of Houston immediately suspended all voluntary and I'm doing the biggest air quotes possible because I don't know how student athletes voluntarily are really doing anything voluntary workouts uh, after six student athletes tested positive for COVID coming down with symptoms. So that's another thing to keep into consideration that all of these student athletes are being subjected to coming back. And it's been really apparent right off the bat that this is not necessarily the safest thing for all involved. Shereen? Yeah, I mean, just in terms of updates on what's happening. I can talk about NWSL, the Challenge Cup. I did have a hot take with Meg Linehan and Steph Yang. Um, Just on the piece about that, we can't have sports without sports media. And 
about the Challenge Cup, which will is slated to begin June 27th, um, media won't actually be going. And this is something I reached out to Meg Linehan and got a direct quote from her on this. And she was saying that that access will be restricted, meaning that remote access and quote unquote will have to be stellar. And so this for me makes it seem really bizarre. And Meg also said they will have to be inventive in how they create spaces for that. That being said, Meg did mention that she is a national soccer writer. She's the only full-time hire of women's soccer in the entire country. And she often doesn't get her information for stories. She does features more, but she doesn't do it in post-game pressers all the time. But that being said, that Challenge Cup is set up so that no media will have direct access to players. And what will that look like? And for someone like Meg, it wasn't worth it to go through the risk involved with travel, with isolation, and necessarily still not being able to access players. So for her and for other media folks, it's just better to have something set up that really is, like she said, inventive, but also create a space where media can get, you know, put in media requests, but get answers or have Zoom calls perhaps with some of the coaches afterwards or something. But NWSL really has to figure this out because as important it is that this is happening, we also want to have media that's covering it fairly because, I mean, we're all clamoring and wanting for media to, to cover this. Why don't we have access? That's that's critical. And that's something that I think about a lot. And if you're not going to have media, you know, have access to the players, it makes me wonder, is it even safe to do in the first place? And as we know, the rosters for this are not even concrete. The final rosters come out June 21st. Players can opt in or opt out. It's still rumored about who's going to, who's not going to, and they have until June 21st. What happens after that? I don't know. Like what happens if someone goes to Utah and then sees the setup and says, I don't want to play. What happens then? Those are still questions that I have that haven't yet been answered. I think that for the WNBA, we've had some big updates finally this week. We're recording this on Sunday morning, so things to borrow the NPR politics podcast uh, line. Things may have changed by the time you are listening to this. But we earlier in this week, we got news through the great Ari Chambers, friend of the show, that... A bunch of players were unhappy with the way negotiations were going between the Players Association and the WNBA itself. And they were unhappy with the communication levels between the Players Association and the rest of the players. None of this, I don't think, is surprising. These negotiations like this are really tough. And it's all really personal. We're talking about people's livelihoods and we're talking about their health. And we're doing it in a time where most of these athletes are fighting for the into police brutality and, you know, systemic racism and are very dedicated to that fight and wondering if it's worth it to go back onto the court under given all these conditions. But the original update we got from Ari was that the WNBA was offering to play to pay the players just 60 percent of their salary which many consider just not enough money to incentivize them to be isolated from their family for, you know, two to three months and in at the IMG Academy in Florida. You know, if they don't get a plus one, that was the news earlier in the week and a lot of stuff about how the 
food options while the, of course, NBA is getting private chefs. Um, the WNBA is looking at box lunches. So just not great. The news got better as the week went on. There was a new proposal given from the WNBA that has exciting things such as 100% salary for all the players. Players can opt out, though in the NWSL, players can opt out and still get paid. But that's not true for the WNBA. If you opt out, to, if you opt to sit out, you're, you're, you will not get paid. But it's still good that there is an opt out option. There's also extra provisions put in, like the NWSL had extra provisions put in for the mothers in their league, which is really important. The WNBA followed that mold and was able to get extra, get a caretaker to come on for players with children so that they're not separated from their children for this long of a period. So it looks like we are moving towards a deal right now. No update on, as someone put on Twitter, the lunchable situation. Although I have heard that there will be a stipend so that players can go and buy their own groceries and cook for themselves if, you know, if they're not happy with the food that's going to be provided. Um, All this has taken place while the NBA is looking to come back in about a week after the WNBA. So right now it's looking like the WNBA will come back on uh, July 24th, once again in Bradenton, Florida. And then the NBA will come back about July 31st in Disney World. And a lot of NBA players are wondering if this is worth it for them. Kyrie Irving has led a big call between... Uh, that I, you know, I think about 80 to 100 players were on, including some prominent WNBA players such as Natasha Cloud and Renee Montgomery, who I was just talking about earlier on the show. And they were talking about he doesn't think that playing this summer, he's not playing anyways, uh, as he's been injured, but he doesn't think that these that they should play this summer. He thinks it's distracting from social justice causes. He thinks that they should use this time to be in their families, to be in their communities, and to be doing the work now that everyone is kind of paying attention. Of course, there are some NBA players who need the salaries and feel like it's best if they use the platform of NBA games in order to you know, propel their activism forward. And I think in the WNBA, you see the same thing. Of course, it's a different scale, but the the calculus is going to be very individual for players, um, both on an activism level, both on a personal health level, and just uh, the calculation level. And for me, I'm so interested in listening to these athletes and just kind of supporting whatever decisions they make and, you know, really going from there. It's time for the most lit segment of the show. Do you get it? Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Uh, The burn pile. Shireen, get us started. Yes, thank you. So as you all know, I'm in Canada. So in Canada this week, white women decided to use the N-word. Wendy Mesley, who is a senior reporter with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, was put on suspension and her show was suspended as well. And then what ended up happening was there was a bit of a... It was a bit of an issue. It's not a bit of an issue. It was a huge issue around misogynoir and bullying of Kayla Gray, who is the only black 
woman broadcaster on TSM, the sports network, a huge outlet in Canada. And what ended up happening is this is the result of a woman named Sherry Ford, who was white, who wrote a piece on her family's experience. Sherry is married to another fellow TSN staffer named Dwayne Ford, who is black. So they have a, you know, biracial children. And Sherry wanted to write about her experience, having that in the wake of all of this, which is totally fine. And it's, you know, important for her to share how she feels. She wrote on Medium. So she wasn't actually at an outlet and she did that. But she typed out the N word twice um, in her piece. And that went unchecked. And when Kayla, who is a stalwart of everything fabulous in sports media industry in Canada, just pointed that out because responses to Sherry's piece that was shared on Twitter were so many people. And that was very disappointing for me. Just one of the things I'm going to add into the burn pile was the responses were like, this is wonderful. Thank you. Nobody, not a single person checked her on using the N word. And I went to read it, which has now since been changed. She's edited it now. I haven't read that word and it's incredibly jarring and upsetting and I'm not black. There's no way, no way it should have been written out. Now, Sherry's excuse was my husband is black and he said I could when Kayla wrote her out. Enter Tim McClure. Tim McClure is this white dude. We don't even know who he is. He he blocks everybody. He's this white guy apparently associated with TSN. He went on 11 point thread and basically said Sherry should have the right to say what she wants. It's this moment. He called out Kayla Grace specifically, and he tagged her employers. He tagged TSN. He tagged TSN PR. He tagged Bell Media, which owns TSN, and was like, this is not a call to get her fired. And I'm like, why the fuck would you tag her employers, you son of a bitch? Secondly, one of his Twitter threads and one of the tweets, he also turned off response, which I didn't know you could do. He turned off, like, commentary. And he quoted Maya Angelou at Kayla. So, yes, this subpar white man is quoting Maya Angelou at Kayla. It was a mess. So, anyway, everyone took to Twitter. We rallied. It was much of the subject of a Zoom call I had with Black Girl Hockey Club on Friday night. We're all figuring out what to do. So, what ended up happening out of that and all of that mess, because it's not up for a white man to come and defend a white woman's action. That's not, that's exactly what happened. And it was disgusting. And, you know, people poured out and reached out to Kayla, who's been doing so much and exhausted. So I want to take all those facets of white supremacy, especially this white man. Who the fuck are you, Tim McClure? Nobody even knows. I just want to share the the, the photo of him blocking me because he blocked anyone who tried to reply to him. To this is super problematic. It's it's terrible. It's insulting. Kayla is an absolute star. And as a result of this, we had hashtag Kayla Gray Appreciation Day, which is very important, which was yesterday also the one-year anniversary of the Raptors 2019 one. But all of that other shit that led up to it is exhausting. It's infuriating. And it's part of white supremacy. I don't want to take that. And I want to put it on the burn pile. Burn. 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 Okay, I'm so happy you did that because I've been trying to follow that as someone who doesn't know much about Canadian media and I needed that <laughs> explainer. It's been very hard to follow on Twitter. <laughs> so that is good. I'm going to go quickly. Uh, I would like to put the, well, maybe all men, but in particular, the U.S. men's national team, not the uh, U.S. soccer associated part, but the players association. So this week, um, the U.S. soccer 
finally came forward and said, oh, right, we were huge racist assholes when we said that Megan Rapino could not take a knee during the national anthem. And that was bad. And we are sorry. And we repeal the policy. Um, but before that, all of you know the, the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association released a statement calling on U.S. soccer to do that. And then the Men's uh, Soccer Men's Players Association released their own statement, which it, it, you know, said that the Federation's anthem policy was ill-advised and, insen- and insensitive political statement by the Federation to show that they would not tolerate the conduct of Colin Kaepernick and Megan Rapinoe. Here's the sentence, uh, emphasis, mine. Um, because the policy was never negotiated with our Players Association, it did not apply to the U.S. men's national team players, so we were not concerned about it. <laughs> However, the Federation now absolutely needs to acknowledge they were wrong to issue it and to apologize for it and rescind it. So obviously that sentence that sticks out is that it did not apply to us, so we were not concerned about it. First of all, it never they never negotiated it with the Women's Players Association either. They just unilaterally made the rule. So that's just not a good excuse. And number two, isn't that why we are here as a nation right now? Because we've all decided that uh, if it doesn't apply to us directly, we're not concerned with the issue. Doesn't that just perfectly sum up why we are where we are? And for them to put it in writing at this point and not even express the tiniest bit of shame for saying that part out loud, this week it, it... I shouldn't be stunned anymore. I know, but I am stunned. So I'd like to throw that statement in particular and once and for all, anyone everywhere who thinks that because a policy or a rule or um, discrimination of any kind is not directly applied to them, that they get to opt out and not be concerned about it. Burn. 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 Bren? Well, in honor of Pride Month, I want to burn the behavior of Brazilian football player who currently is at Club PSG, Paris Saint-Germain, for his homophobic behavior. This week, the LGBT activist Agrippino Magalhães filed a complaint against him with the Sao Paulo prosecutor's office because Neymar had accused... Well, no. He... he basically used a homophobic slur in a private conversation, the equivalent of the F word in English for gay people, but actually it's even more violent and hard to explain in in Portuguese. There's more than one word. Uh, He threw the insult at his mother's boyfriend because his mother's boyfriend revealed he was bisexual. We on the show have made fun of Neymar's mother's boyfriend's dancing. Oh, right. (laughs) Um, So I did want to circle back to say that had nothing to do with us not supporting his bisexuality, which is obviously something we would celebrate, whereas his dancing is not. Sorry. The homophobic (laughs) language was leaked. And in addition to that, he is a his one of his sponsors is the underwear company Lupo. Last month, a commercial that he did also had a homophobic and sexist it's hard to to explain exactly without it 
like explaining every detail of the commercial, but basically when a man comes in to see him in his underwear, he's embarrassed and leaves the dressing room when he's, you know, trying on these underwear, which if you know anything about Brazilian football is a decision that you make in a commercial like that. And Neymar would never feel uncomfortable being naked around other men. So yeah, I want to burn his participation in the commercial. I want to burn the way in which he talked about his mother's boyfriend and that his slur against you know, the LGBTQ community should be something he responds to, should be something PSG responds to, should be something that the Brazilian Federation responds to. So burn. Burn. All right. After that burning, it is time to uplift some women who have inspired us this week in the Badass Woman of the Week segment. First of all, um, UFC is going on, and so we want to congratulate Cynthia Calvillo, who uh, topped the um, top-ranked women's flyweight fighter in UFC for a huge win um, on Saturday night. Also, want to shout out Jada Coleman, who was selected as Gatorade Softball Player of the Year. The Colony High School shortstop is a left-handed pitcher, and we uh, are looking forward to keep watching Jada Soar. Huge shout-out to the Chelsea women's side and Anita Asante, our guest last week, a must-listen if you haven't yet, for donating their FAWSL prize money to Refuge, an organization in the UK that supports survivors of interpersonal and domestic violence. This is Chelsea's third league title. And they also won the Continental Cup this year. And can I get a drum roll, please? Want to shout out Natasha Cloud, burn it all down favorite, a winner of this award before, who became the first woman to sign a sneaker deal with Converse Athletics this week, is someone who has covered Natasha Cloud for since her second year in the league. To see her the way she has grown on the court and especially off of it, using her voice, using her platform. She was, you know, not a well-known player when she came into this league. She was a mid-major player. She was a second round draft pick. And it is, her activism fuels her play on court. Her Everything with her starts with her voice and starts with her activism. And it is great to see her get rewarded in this way. All right. What's good, Brenda? I'm embarrassed almost to say it, but Messi's back on the pitch. Um, <laughs> it's been a couple months, but not just him, actually. All the people back, and I have stuck with my Frauen Bundesliga fandom, and so I hope to to get a little bit more knowledgeable and familiar with that because it 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 does it has been nice to have a a league come back first that I wasn't as familiar with. So I took some time and like watched something I wouldn't normally watch. And that's been really fun. Badminton, the weather's been really good. And I like playing badminton. And my kids are now old enough to play for real, you know, uh, and keep it going. So volleying for a while, which is really Wait nice. Wait a minute. Are you saying badminton? Badminton. What are you saying? Is that the same? 
Is that badminton? Is I'm sorry. Is that the same thing? We're talking racket sport. Yes, it's it's badminton for us. Oh, sorry, because I was like, "What's happening?" Okay. Yeah, we just say I I believe. I mean, I always said badminton. Growing, same. Yes. Growing, <laughs> growing up, I okay. I honestly have um never thought about it, but uh you know it, yeah uh badminton <laughs> badminton. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, mean, I it, don't know. Wow. Well. <laughs> right. I, um, it, it is British, so you know, if, with your accent, Shireen, it's you're probably Bad right. Minton. You're probably oh right. Oh my gosh, with Shireen's British accent. Uh, oh and so yeah, so that's been really awesome. Anyway, just simple things. Uh, the weather. It's a very midwestern thing to talk about how great the weather is, but that too has been wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Must be a southern thing too. Um, I speaking of weather, this is an awkward transition, but I am. I have booked a three night stay for me and my dog on a one hundred acre farm in the middle Ooh. of Virginia for this week. It is like you know, I can't really travel anywhere, so this is my you know, like I want my dog to be able to run, run, run. I need to get out of this apartment. Um, I am going to have to do a little bit of work there, but hopefully after a day or two, I can then take off. And then I'm going to go down and um, visit a few family members uh, in the mountains of North Carolina. If my I'm I'm taking a COVID test uh, on Monday since I was out of the protest. So depending on obviously how that comes back uh, will depend on if I can if I can go see my family. But you know, uh, I haven't really left home and I don't feel super comfortable doing it right now. But I think for my mental health, getting out, getting away from my apartment and the computer and getting outside um, is going to be key to continue going forward this summer. Uh, so I, that is what's good in my world. Shreen? Um, yeah, thanks. I, I, my dad turned 75 on Tuesday. So in Ontario, you're allowed to expand your bubble to 10. So I was able to go to Windsor where my parents are and my brother's family came as well. And it was pretty spectacular. My dad doesn't like birthdays. He just thinks they're, he'll like, I don't do birthdays. And he'll say, well, they're not oh, permissible. A Gemini after my own heart. I love yeah, it. <laughs> I know. I thought about that. I was just like, what is, and then he'll say like, you know, Islamically, they're not this. And I'm like, no, no, don't, don't do that. But anyways, so me being extra, and as you all know, I got him balloons from Party City as a decoy, like, you know, with, you know, a couple of helium one seven and a five and then some just to throw them off. But the real treat was the 50 foot inflatable dog in flip flop swim trunks and sunglasses that went on to our lawn, my parents' house at nine o'clock in the morning. And dad had no idea. And it was brilliant. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell my mom. This was actually a co-conspiracy with me and my parents, a dear friend, Virginia Hills, Virginia, I love you. And Virginia is my mom's office manager. And she just like teases my dad more than anything. And so we co-conspired to get this done. I didn't tell anyone in my family just because they would spill the beans. And it's hard for me to keep secrets, but this was amazing. So it was just wonderful. My dad was completely mortified. Um, The video was so funny. The kids... (laughs) The kids did not know either. So all seven grandkids, like from 20, like ages uh, 10 to 20, all woke up and were like, oh, my God. All were like doing Snapchats, TikToks with this huge people were driving by. My dad was 
just like so completely embarrassed. It was the best. So that was so much fun. And in fact, this is a side note. I posted this photo on my, and I just tweeted it out on my Twitter account. And I got probably one of the most responses to a tweet I've ever had. And part of me loves this. And thank you for all the warm wishes to my dad. But part of me is like, will y'all please read some of the shit that I write too? <laughs> Does anyone like tweet the most random thing? Anyways, so it was it was a wonderful, wonderful weekend. We came back because I had to be here to record. And um, happy birthday to my dad. I um, also just wanted to say that my son Salahuddin made the Team Ontario training program for volleyball. So I'm a very proud mama. He will be training online through Zoom and going through the very rigorous three and a half weeks in July. I'm excited for him. It's going to be a lot of hard work and very challenging because he's never trained online with a team before. It's always been in person. He's excited to get back. And um, like Brenda, I have a badminton set in addition to the table tennis. So we'll see how that goes. Again, badminton. So anyways, that's about it. I'm looking forward to the summer starting. Thank you all so much for listening to Burn It All Down. If you want to support us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash burnitalldown. We will have some exclusive segments and a video for our patreon listeners patreon supporters this month so those are always fun and you know we're on facebook and twitter we'll put all these links in the show notes because my brain is already on vacation mode and can't remember all the differences between all of our little handles so um (laughs) we (laughs) just being super honest (laughs) love you all so much thank you for getting us through another week to quote our Brenda, burn on, but not out. Burn on.